Well, as you know, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for a number of weeks now, and we have been dealing with this larger matter that Paul began to discuss in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this matter of uh, Christian liberty, of freedoms that you might have in Christ, and what are the potential limitations of exercising those liberties. Um, The Apostle Paul in chapter 9 has been defending his individual rights as an apostle, primarily the right to be supported by his work of the ministry amongst the Corinthians. But then we've turned the corner and we've begun to look in the latter part of chapter 9 how the Apostle Paul is giving this illustration to demonstrate the way in which he has gladly surrendered his rights, that, that the freedom that he has is most exhibited by the freedom to sacrifice, the freedom to give up for the advancement of the gospel and for the benefit and blessing of fellow believers. We came to the last section in our study, primarily the last section, essentially the last section, beginning in verse 19, and we found ourselves kind of coming across this probably rather familiar to many, this rather familiar phrase in the second part of verse 22 of chapter 9, where he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We're going to continue to kind of work our way through the rest of this chapter today. I think we'll have time to get all the way through it, but I want to kind of introduce um, some things to you to get our minds thinking about the nature of the principles behind this verse and this this theme that's captured here, this summary theme that's captured here in the second half of verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I don't know if you've noticed that there is an obvious breadth to that statement. All things, all people, all means... The effort here on the part of the Apostle Paul, as we've seen over and over again, is to be effective in gospel witness and to not put up any hindrance or any obstacle in front of the gospel or anything that would hinder his effectiveness at communicating or bringing to bear the truths of the gospel to those he's evangelizing, to those he's teaching. And so this reference is in a context, obviously, of this this interest that he has, not just interest, but this deep and passionate conviction that he has to be as effective as he possibly can be in this mission of apostolic ministry and bringing the gospel to, at this point in time, the people of Corinth and obviously there in the, the, the Roman Empire in the first century. But this particular verse, as we've mentioned before, has been used as a backdrop to justify some of the most bizarre, uh, even some of the most um, biblically undermining philosophies of ministry and ways of doing church and, and priorities of evangelism that have, in many respects, been very devastating to the effectiveness of the gospel. So the very point of Paul's summation statement in chapter 9, verse 22, whereby he's focusing 
on effectiveness in bringing the gospel message and bringing the clarity of the gospel message and to not putting up any kind of obstacle that would hinder the clarity of that message. What has happened, particularly in our day and time, is that this particular verse has been in many ways abused to murky, bring murkiness to the message of the gospel and to, to bring a lack of clarity to what the truth really is or what the people of God are supposed to be about or how we're supposed to do evangelism or church ministry or teaching or preaching or any of these things. So I want to try to spend some time here at the very beginning to, to bring up uh, some illustrative material around this that hopefully will then be useful to us and we, as we think about these things moving through the rest of this study and the rest of this chapter. And by way of introduction, I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's going to sort of set the context for some other things I, I feel compelled to share with you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I drop down to the second half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This particular section where the Apostle Paul is really calling out the Corinthians to flee from things that no longer characterize or should no longer characterize who they are because they are now in Christ. They have been washed. They have been sanctified. You'll notice that he takes up this concept of identification with particular areas of sin. This matter of identity he, he refers to not being deceived because neither the sexually immoral, not the person who commits sexual immorality, but the person who is identified or characterized by sexually being sexually immoral. That, is, that has become characteristic of their identity. Characteristically an idolater, an adulterer, 
men who practice homosexuality, thieves nor greedy. He's, he's listing these identifying characteristics, people who are characterized not just by virtue of disparate acts of sinfulness, but this becomes the profile for them. And he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he makes the important statement, and such were some of you. Namely, that all of us, apart from Christ, were identified with sin. That that sin was the identification marker for us. Sin that separated us from God. And it is the sin uh, that identified us for which Christ came and took on so that we might be made right with God. I mean, that's the essence of the redemptive work of Christ. That's the essence of the gospel message. And then he goes on to explain how in this particular area of the use of our bodies or allowing ourselves to be characterized by the type of sin that is a sin against our own body, he highlights that as having a distinctive character to it. A distinctive nature to it. It, 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 it. it sort of consumes a person in some unique kind of destructive way. And what we know in our day and time is that this is part of the major battlefront for us in our culture. We know that we're not just dealing anymore with widespread aberrant sexual mores or widespread adoption of illicit sexual conduct as sort of a practice of life. What we're dealing with now is a complete turning inside out of concepts of identity. A a putting up of people's hands in the face of the God who made them and said... And saying, you did not make me this way. I determine my my identity. And we have, sadly, many, many people in many, many churches who are approaching this grave matter with some faulty and even heretical notion about what the application of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 should look like in their lives or in the lives of people in the church. In a Christian Post article published three days ago, on January 26th, entitled, Andy Stanley says gay churchgoers have more faith than a lot of you. The article reads this, Do gay individuals who go to church have more faith than most Christians? According to megachurch pastor Andy Stanley, the answer apparently is a resounding yes. Stanley, who leads the multi-site North Point Ministries and North Point Community Church, based in Alpharetta, Georgia, said in a now viral sermon clip that any LGBT individual who continues to go to church has, quote, more faith than a lot of you. End quote. Here's a quote from Stanley. A gay person who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated, I'm telling you, 
They have more faith than I do, Stanley said in the clip, which had over 1.2 million views on Twitter alone. They have more faith than a lot of you, he said. He also noted the courage it takes for LGBT individuals to continually attend churches that don't accept, accept their lifestyle, that don't accept their lifestyle. Quote, a gay person who knows, you know what, I might not be accepted, but I'm going to try it anyway. And as a straight person, have you ever, where do you go that you're not sure you're going to be accepted over and over, asked Stanley. So kind of a muddled quote there. And his point is, is that straight people don't have this kind of courage. You don't willingly go into places over and over again where you know you might not be accepted. The message, which reportedly came during North Point's Drive Conference in May of 2022, also spoke directly to the, quote, gay men and women who grew up in church and the gay men and women who've come to faith in Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, end quote. After acknowledging the multiple passages of Scripture that condemn homosexuality as sin, Stanley appeared to suggest that rather than a failure to repent on behalf of LGBT individuals who go to church, it was God who didn't change their hearts. Quote, I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1. So interesting to talk about all that stuff, Stanley said. But just, oh my goodness, a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father, who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, God said no, and they still love God. We have something to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who want to worship with us, he continued. I know the verses. I know the clobber passages, right? We got to figure this out. And you know what? I think you are, end quote. So what Stanley is articulating in this passage is not some notion of loving people and hating the sin or some such simple euphemism. This is not being all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. This is an overt denial of what God says about how he made us. It is an embracing of satanic lies about identity and then infusing it into the life and philosophy of ministry of a church that has massive influence and impact. And the sad thing about it is that it's leading people who have given themselves over wholesale to all manner of sexual perversion as characteristic of their new identity that they define. It puts them into a place of comfort and ease rather than conviction and terror of judgment. This just happened, but it's been happening for a long time. 
In an interview 10 years ago, Stanley was asked this question. What is your philosophy of communication or preaching? I'm going to read you his entire response to that question. Preaching on Sunday mornings is a simple thing, and by complicating it, I think we all do ourselves and the audience a disservice. I mean, we don't want to upset the audience, right? It is, a very, it is very simple. Here's the model. Make people feel like they need an answer to a question. Then, take them to God's Word to answer the question. And tell them why it is important to do what we just talked about. And then close by saying, wouldn't it be great if everybody did that? And that's it. It is a journey. You take people from somewhere to somewhere. And that's why preaching by points is a terrible model. Because points are not a journey. Points are points. But communication is, here we all are. We all have a common need or desire. We all have something in common. And I'm going to stay here until I make you feel the need to have it resolved. And then I'm going to open God's word and I'm going to resolve it. And then I'm going to take that and tell you what you need to do specifically. And then I'm going to take a minute and talk about what the world would be like. How much better off we would all be if we would all do what the scriptures say. It's really that simple. Anytime a person listens to a pastor or to any talk that is compelling, all those elements are there. And you feel like you have gone some, you've gone with somebody on a journey. You just need to learn to outline that way. So when they bring an outline, I say, you didn't make me want to know what you spent 20 minutes telling me, so you left the station without me. I didn't really care. It really wasn't that compelling. So give me one idea, not multiple ideas. Most sermons are too long. Most sermons cover way too much information. Most sermons could be a series. I say that all the time. Poor guy. He spent all week preparing. He has three sermons and gave them all in one rushed 40-minute time period. His three points should have been three sermons. Just leave me with a thought. We will all come back next week, so there is no rush to get it all in in one week. So it's simple. It's a journey. This morning, I'm going to start by making sure that I'm going to leave the station and everybody knows where we are going. And they know why they need to go with me. And once I have built enough tension for someone to give a rip about what we're going to talk about, then I'm going to take them to a passage of Scripture where somebody resolves or expresses that tension, and I'm going to stay there long enough so hopefully they will go back that afternoon and they will say, I understand this part of the Bible. Then I'm going to talk about what to do and what a wonderful world it would be if we all just do this. It's really that simple. He goes on to talk about this time with Jeff Foxworthy when he came and spoke to their staff for two hours. And it was so compelling that he was able to stay engaged for the full two hours, laughing hysterically at Jeff Foxworthy's material. He says, the reason I bring that up is there's this myth that people say sermons need to be short because people today have short attention spans. That is totally irrelevant. People's attention spans are as long as their engagement. If I'm engaged, I will sit and stay engaged until I have to go to the bathroom. The issue is, are people engaged, not how long the sermon is. Granted, there are things that determine how long worship services should be. But communicators, 
need to figure out how well to, do they engage people, and they should not talk one word longer than people are engaged. Let me just cast this into our world for a minute. I do not care whether or not you're engaged. Let me back up. I have no idea whether or not you're engaged. When I look out, I see people who, at minimum, are generally courteous and kind people. So whether you're engaged or not, just for my sake, you're probably going to try to give me the impression that you are. Right? But I'm, I'm not going to, if I'm doing my task, if Shane's doing his job, he's not going to stop because he's trying to read the room and determine levels of engagement. He's going to stop when he believes that he's proclaimed what God's word says on a particular matter with as much clarity that he can possibly bring to bear from his study. That's it. Because the assumption on our part is that what I need more than anything and what all of you need more than anything is the life-giving truth of God's word. Colliding with your flesh and bringing life to you in ways that you can be more fruitful and faithful in your kingdom responsibilities and your kingdom work. I don't think you need a journey this morning. This kind of philosophy of ministry is devastating to the people of God. The ultimate fruit of it will take you from this interview back in probably around 2012 to a leadership conference some 10 years later in which you are completely imbibing what the godless secular culture says Identity is based upon. When it comes to, for example, the sin of homosexuality, if I grant that that is now your identity, think of all the other identities I now have to grant to people that are characteristic of sin that the Apostle Paul elucidated in a small list. It is the complete abandonment of a biblical anthropology. It's a complete setting aside of God's foundational principles that are laid out for us in Genesis. And when you get to Genesis chapter 3 in the, the account of the fall, you see this very thing going on. This is Satan's design. God knows that when you eat of it, No longer are you subjected to him and his commands and his authority as your creator. You will be like him. I'm going to articulate for you a new pathway to a new identity. This is completely counter to the identity that God sort of gave you to try to keep you down. Or that some overlording patriarchal infrastructure has been pressing down on society for decades and decades and decades. Break free of that. This is all cast under the umbrella of reaching people. Every bit of it is cast 
comfortably, in their minds, under this umbrella. Under a 1 Corinthians 9.22 umbrella. But the leaven principle is aggressively at work. The children's ministry has leadership that is not just empathetic, but affirming of the LGBT community. Affirming of it. It runs through the entire ministry. Now, at the risk of sounding like this is some big sort of church or church leader bashing exercise, I, maybe that's in my heart. I, I hope not, but, but that's not my intent. But the fact of the matter is, is that a major influence in our community is that. If we're going to be equipped for the work of ministry, we need to understand that. We need to bring the truth to bear on these matters. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and let's start trying to get our heads back into this. As we've discussed, the Apostle Paul in chapter 9 spends a great deal of time in the first half articulating his rights, the rights that he has, by virtue of his apostolic authority, obtained by virtue of his commissioning and calling. They're his rights, or primarily this right to remuneration as an apostle and as a minister of the gospel. And he defends these rights, but in the second half, he's talking all about his willing surrender of these rights for the sake of the gospel. And we've looked at that going back to verse 15. But I want us to talk more today about verses 19 and following. We saw that after he defended his rights in verses 1 to 14, he declares with passion and very strong conviction that he is surrendering his rights in verses 15 to 18. Before we get to verse 19, you see there in verse 15 that he says, I'll die before I compromise on this front. That's how deep this conviction runs. He'll not allow his mission or his message to be compromised by the self-serving and manipulative uh, expectations of some wealthy patron. Remember we talked about this whole patronage kind of system that was in play during the first century. So there's no way that he's going to have, for example, someone manipulating him and his ministry and his message because he owes them something because they supported him in some way. He's not going to succumb to that kind of manipulation. He, he talks about the compulsion that he, he has because of this call, this grace work of God that both saved him and then gave him a stewardship of the ministry of the gospel in verses 16 to 17. And then in verse 18, he highlights the fact that there is the reward of the gospel sacrifice, that, that in sacrificing for the sake of the gospel, we share in its reward and its blessings because people come to Christ and we, we, we share in that wonderful work of God as he uses us to bring the gospel to bear and people come to faith in Christ. There's, there's inherent reward in giving up or laying down your rights for the sake of the gospel. The focus for the Apostle Paul is not on what he's giving up, but on what is being gained. What is being won. That's why he says, I'll gladly lay it down. Because I understand 
the nature of sharing in the reward of this blessing of the gospel. In verse 18, he begins to introduce this principle of giving up to gain, of sacrificing to win. And this becomes the focus of the next section, which starts in verse 19 and continues all the way through the end of the chapter, which is where we're going to settle in the rest of our time. In verse 19 to 27, Paul begins to elaborate on what is this central focus, his core objective in all he does. And it's a focus on winning, gaining, profiting. He wants to win. This word that's used here to win, to acquire by effort or investment or to gain. Verse 19, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, in order to win Jews. Verse 20 again, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. And then he illustrates it all in verses 24 to 27 in this, in this metaphor of competing and training and disciplining your body so that you receive the prize and that you, so you don't disqualify yourself. He's focused on winning this, this reward of rescued souls. It's worth the sacrifice of any temporal rights. He's focused like a laser on this. So let's read starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter and we'll start walking our way through it again. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This reward of rescued souls is summed up, as we've already said, there in verse 22, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And then verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. This is what is the preoccupation of the Apostle Paul. But he, he sort of sums all this up in what I'm just going to call this winning formula. I mean, what's, what's the key here? What's Paul's winning formula? Well, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Well, that's what people are confusing. That's what people are kind of adulterating and misusing. So we probably want to unpack that a little bit and make sure we understand what's the real nature of this winning formula that the Apostle Paul is giving to us here. I mean, he says, all things to all people. Which things? Which people? In other words, are there any qualifiers? Are there any caveats? If you pull that verse up and just pin it to the wall, what you will see is all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. That would indicate on its own that there 
are no caveats. There are no constraints. It's, it's total. It's comprehensive. It's whatever the cost. And in fact, we've been talking about his passion in this regard. He'd rather die than give up this, this, this uh, uh, t- than, than to hold on to this right and give up his strategic advantage in this gospel witness. But Paul employs a very vivid and real concept of slavery to emphasize what is the nature and extent of his willingness to surrender his rights for the sake of the gospel. This is an important thing for us to kind of understand here. We talked about this a little bit last week. He says there in verse 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more of them. So he provides this this example of slavery to begin to explain what he means by all things to all men, so that by all means I might win some. And what does he mean by enslaving himself to others? That's literally... That's literally the term that he uses there. I've made myself a servant, literally could be translated, I have enslaved myself. That, that my, in my freedom, I have submitted myself to bondage for this purpose. Listen to what one commentator said about this whole identifier, and really just the broader context here, these these identification points that the Apostle Paul is using. He says the slave-free dualism was as basic to Roman society as the Jew-Gentile dualism was to Jewish thought. According to the Institutes of, of the Roman jurist Gaius, the second century historian, the principal distinction, he says, made by the law of persons is this, that all human beings are either free or slaves. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, The polarity between slave and free seemed as natural a way of dividing up the human race as those between men and women or young and old, end quote. So in other words, this identification of slave or free was basically an identifying mark of the population. You kind of found yourself in those two categories, and it was an understood identification. In the same way, and he does that here too, that in the Jewish community, the dichotomy between everyone fits into either Jew or Gentile is in play as well. This commentator says for a person to become a slave was to give up their identity and experience what, was, what has been referred to as social death. Essentially, the slave serves as surrogate body for the slaveholder. This is about a new identity. But it's an identity that is found in Christ. It is true identity in Him. Paul adopts the position, this commentator goes on to say, of the powerless slave to bring salvation to those he serves. Paul does not lead from a secure position above others, but from a position below them, incarnating the folly of the cross. So by identifying himself as a slave, by by saying, I become a slave to all, he is not only just making an identifying statement with Christ, but he's making an identifying statement with a whole sector of society and and placing himself in a particular socioeconomic strata, if you will. And in doing so, he was making a statement about the nature of his work and his ministry among them. But he's also saying something to the Corinthians. That rather than leveraging his rights as a free man, he surrenders his rights 
like that of a common first century slave. And this is about a thoroughly willing disposition of heart and mind rather than a comprehensive prescription for all of life and conduct. And that's the difference. The Apostle Paul is not saying, I've made myself a slave to all, therefore, whatever all people say I should do, that's what I will do. If it means that I should you know, have a, a, a circus every Sunday because that's what people are saying I should do to be effective in my gospel witness, that's what I'll do because I'm a slave to all. No, this is about his disposition of heart and mind, of willing surrender, of the identity of a slave. A slave takes on the identity of the master. It's not, it's not a prescription for the details of life and conduct. And if you think about it rationally for just a moment, isn't it impossible for anyone to literally be all things to all people? How can you do that? When you're being all things to some people at some point in time, I can guarantee you, you're not being all things to other people at another point in time. So clearly we can't lift this particular phrase up out of its context and make it mean something that turns into absurdity when you begin to apply it like that. All men don't expect nor desire all the same things, and certainly not all at the same time. You can't be all things to all men literally. That's not what this verse means. Paul's winning formula here, it's obviously comprehensive in scope, but the scope is confined more narrowly within the defined parameters of gospel witness. It's, it, it's, it's actually more narrow than it might appear on, on the face if you just pull it up out of its context. Now, let me just give you an example. If you adopt some of the ethos of the seeker-sensitive kind of philosophy of ministry, one of the, uh, I guess pillars of that philosophy of ministry is to not to do anything to offend people. You don't want to be unnecessarily offensive to people in your preaching or in your gospel witness. And so there's a lot of measures that are taken, a lot of uh, just wrangling of language and communication to try to not, to try to anticipate, first of all, what might be offensive, and then to blunt the message in such a way so that it's not unnecessarily offensive. This is part of the, the mantra here. This is a little bit of what, what uh, Stanley was kind of alluding to in his philosophy of preaching there. You want to make people feel like there's something that they have a need of. What's their need? Let's, let's tap into that. And then we'll take them to Scripture. And then we'll say, wouldn't it be great if we all did that? Well, this is more narrowly defined than that, obviously. It's narrowly defined within the context of accurate and true gospel witness. And an example would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You'll see in this particular section that there's every expectation that people will be offended by the gospel. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's it. And what is it? Well, it's a stumbling block. It's an offense to Jews and it's utter folly. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He goes on to talk about how he didn't come with wise and persuasive words and eloquent speech. He wanted their salvation to rest on the power of the God as the gospel was brought to bear upon them, not on some crafty, clever way he formulated the message. Now I ask you, what is defining of what I read earlier? But, but power and authority being invested in the communicator and his or her cleverness in crafting the kind of message that touches the feelings of people that you're communicating with primarily as a starting point. The Apostle Paul's like, I'm bringing the gospel, Christ crucified, and it is going to cause offense to those who are perishing. Absolutely. But to those who God is calling, it is the power of God. He talks about not being ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to those that believe. So this is, this is a, narrow, a narrow application of all things to all men. David Garland, in his commentary, he says... He does not think, Paul does not think that fundamental and distinctive demands are negotiable depending upon the circumstances. He did not tone down his assault on idolatry to avoid offending idolaters or to curry favor with them. His accommodation has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message, soft peddling its ethical demands, or compromising its absolute monotheism. Paul never modified the message of Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to Greeks. So becoming all things does not mean anything under the auspices of evangelism or, to, or seeking to win the lost. The question Paul is still addressing here, and this is so important in terms of thinking about Paul's con- the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He is still addressing this question, the one that's coming from the quote-unquote strong in Corinth, the knowledgeable in Corinth. Those that we saw in chapter 8. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. 
the Father from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the strong in Corinth will be saying, so if this is true, why would we give up any ground here? Why would we, why would we sort of mute our understanding of the true nature of the true and living God who saved us by the grace and sacrifice of his son, why would we give up ground by kind of bowing the knee to not take partaking of food sacrifice to idols when we know an idol is nothing? You just said it. In other words, wouldn't this be inconsistent with the actual saving work of Christ who has delivered us from these idolatrous ways? There's, there's, a, there's a conflict here. Is, is Paul being inconsistent? And he answers this implied question in the very next verse. Verse 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge. Your weaker brothers and sisters matter. We've talked about that when we looked at this passage previously. Surrendering one's rights for another lies at the heart of salvation in Christ, is what he's saying. It's not inconsistent at all. Sacrifice? Giving up to gain? Dying to live? If it so happens that that principle gets applied in me deciding not to eat food sacrificed to idols so that I don't offend a weaker brother who's weak in conscience in this area, that's not inconsistent. That's at the very heart of salvation in Christ. And that's what the Corinthians, the strong Corinthians, the knowledgeable Corinthians were missing altogether. They were missing it. While eating food sacrificed to idols in one setting and refraining from eating in another setting might appear inconsistent, Paul would say, on the surface, it is entirely consistent at its core. In other words, to be Christian is to be oriented around sacrifice and service of others. And so, yes, I could eat this food sacrificed to idols in the first century kind of context. I could do that. I wouldn't be necessarily sinning against God in the partaking of that food. There's nothing in that food that brings sin upon me. An idol is nothing. However, he says, not everyone has this knowledge, and that's the point. So, he elucidates this even further by saying, I'll tell you who all the people are. All things to all people. Who are all the people? Well, he breaks it down into basically three groups or categories of people. You actually see this, interestingly enough, you kind of see this, these three groups summed up further on in this this larger discussion in chapter 10. Remember, this particular discussion starts in chapter 8 and goes all the way through chapter 10. But listen to what chapter 10, verse 32 says. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So he he identifies three different categories or groups of people. To give no offense, and all this is surrounding this matter of food sacrifice titles, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So he kind of summarizes the same principle that he stated in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. But he sums it up here by identifying these three groups of people. So he does it a little bit differently here in chapter 9. He first talks about to the Jew, or by a further descriptor, to those under the law. In verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So, question has to be asked, how does, how does a Jew, Paul, 
determine that he's to become like a Jew. Because he already is a Jew. Remember, that's the Apostle Paul. He was a zealot in his Judaism. But he says here he's no longer under the law. So how does, how does Paul, being a Jew, become like a Jew? What is he talking about? Gordon Fee in his commentary says this, The obvious answer is, in matters that have to do with Jewish religious peculiarities, which Paul, as a disciple of the risen one, had long ago given up as having any bearing on one's relationship with God, these would include circumcision, food laws, and special observances. All these are referenced all throughout the New Testament. On these questions, not only was Paul himself free, he also took and thoroughly a thoroughly polemical stance toward any who would impose such requirements on Gentile converts. On the other hand, he had no problem with Jewish converts continuing such practices as long as they were not considered to give people right standing or special advantages with God. Nor did he exhibit unwillingness to yield to Jewish customs for the sake of the Jews. Although one cannot be certain, from the general context as well as the clear parallels with what will come later, one may infer that food laws are the specific issue here, especially the prohibition against eating marketplace food because of its association with idolatry. Paul himself felt free to eat such food, as his concluding word in chapter 10, verses 23 to 30 makes certain. The present text suggests, however, that he also willingly refrained when he was in more strictly Jewish settings. It's probably this conduct more than any other to which his Corinthian opponents took exception. All things to all men is not anything to every man. To the Jew, for example, specifics, I became as a Jew in that if I knew that eating food sacrificed to idols would cause an offense to my Jewish brethren, I wouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. But if you want to know my perspective on any Jewish convert who would lay a burden of circumcision and following the law of Moses onto a Gentile convert as an additional requirement of salvation, read my letter to the Galatians. Anathema. Anyone that would preach any other gospel should be accursed. I'm, I'm more than happy and feel completely justified in ripping into anyone, including Peter, the apostle to the Jews, if they err in this regard. Not causing anyone to be offended? Are you kidding me? I'm more than inclined to offend if offense is what's needed, because there's blatant error. What you want in your evangelism is for people to come to a knowledge of the truth not to find favor with you and your kindness and your cleverness and your genteelness and your desire to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours talking to them about everything except for the very life that is keeping them from walking with Christ. No call to repentance because I don't want to offend them. So, This is is what he means by, to the Jew I became as a Jew. To those Gentiles, those outside the law, verse 21, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. This is not a message of antinomianism, a message where there is no 
code. There is no moral law. We just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which alludes to some of that, that I might win those outside the law. This is just his commentary on his willingness to do the same thing that he would do in a Jewish setting, in a Gentile setting. He's not going to bring cultural preferences, Judaistic practices to bear in a way that brings offense to a Gentile believer. And then to the weak, that's the reference from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the church of God, to the weak who are inside the church. He says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. Chapter 8, you have this repeating reference to those who are weak, whose consciences are weak because of this matter of food sacrifice titles. That's who he's talking about here. He's referring to those who have weak conscience. So for those, I'll become weak. I won't eat this food if it's going to cause them an offense and a weakness of their conscience. They were provoked for different reasons than the Jews, but the same action might be necessary. I'll surrender that right willingly. Because the objective is to win the prize. And notice what he says there at the end. What I want to avoid is that lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't want to do anything in my gospel witness, in my evangelism, in my efforts to bring the gospel to other people. I don't want to do anything that would disqualify me. And I can assure you that exaggerating or even adulterating the intent of 1 Corinthians 9.22 to compel you to communicate or convey something other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, repent and believe for salvation, that's a disqualifying message right there. Tinker with that, and you're tinkering with disqualification as a witness of the gospel. When we think about the impact of this in our culture, we've talked about this in other ways throughout our, our study, but I, I, I just I don't mean to be hyperbolic or you know, sort of in any way kind of fear-mongering or anything like that, but I think that we need to be prepared to be characterized as offensive people. It does not mean that we join the ranks of, you know, the protesters with signs about God killing gays or some such nonsense and wickedness. But to just merely say that God did not make people something that they cannot get away from And therefore, that is who they are, and we embrace them for who they are. How many sinful identities does that encompass? What's happened in our society is that this whole area of LGBTQIA++ has been carved out and given special consideration. And it's no longer looked at by many for what it actually is from Scripture. And believe me, to say what we've talked about here today out loud in certain settings, that will be highly offensive. People could lose their jobs over just one comment 
One, one definitive statement. Not buying in, not drinking all the Kool-Aid. There are people right now in our church who are having to grapple with corporate policies and mandates and procedures and even, even uh, just the influence and the, the, um, just the social strain and stigma that's being placed upon them in their workplace. These are real significant times for us. And we must be clear about this. When we are called to be all things to all men, this is a call for us to never, never, never minimize the straightforward clarity of the gospel message and the call of God for all who want to have relationship with God through Christ to repent and give your life up to come follow him. None of us, here's the thing, gay, straight, transgender, adulterer, reviler, thief, every person who comes to Christ lays all of that down. Lays all of those identities down to become completely identified with Christ. That's the gospel, and that is the only way someone is saved. So God help us, God protect us from being disqualified by approaching this gospel witness with some other ideas in our minds about what we need to do to shape or refine or soften our message. We could be communicating what ultimately is a damning message to someone. We don't have to be offensive in our demeanor or our tone, but the message of the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentile, but to those who are being saved, to the called, it is the power of God. But the message is the same to everyone. Let's pray.